Hello and welcome to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal musings about cinema. If you're new to the podcast and you don't really know who I am, um, as I said, my name is Caitlin. I am a writer. I'm a dreamer. I'm 27 years old. I um, I have a mad, furious, intense, obsessive passion um, for cinema and for films. And so this podcast is a place for me to just talk about the films that move me and astonish me and that I think are just really important and that have something to say. So um, I live in a rural area in the South in the United States. I'm not really surrounded by a lot of culture or a lot of cinephile culture and so I really needed an outlet to talk about my feelings and my emotions about films and so that's why I created this podcast. The name comes from a, an email that I sent a friend once and I said that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films and so I think that phrase, um, her head in films, is a perfect way to describe how I'm always thinking about films or how certain films haunt me and so this podcast is very personal it's very subjective it's very raw um, and those are all things that I want it to be and that I choose for it to be because it really is just about one young woman's relationship to certain films and that's what this podcast is and so I hope that you will continue to listen and if you're a returning listener I really appreciate your uh, your listening to this it's really wonderful today's episode is going to be about Sophie's Choice a 1982 film by Alan J. Pecula and um, I really want to talk about this film because it's a sort of a benchmark film in my life. It's one that I watched when I was a teenager. I also read the book by William Styron, um, the late William Styron. So when I was a teenager, I took a film appreciation class when I was in high school and this was a class that introduced me to the idea that film could be art and up to that point I had seen film more as merely entertainment as something that you just go to you know you go to the theater I enjoyed films but I certainly didn't see them as art and so this class was pretty pivotal and um, I'm not sure if I saw Sophie's Choice before or after that class. Um, it might have been after. But um, I would say this was probably about 2005, 2004. Um, so probably around, definitely before 2010. So somewhere in the 2000s when I was a teenager and in high school, I came across Sophie's Choice. And I think I saw it probably on Turner Classic Movies or something like that. And I later got the DVD. And um, this was the time before Netflix, before Hulu, before Amazon even, really. And so the only way you were going to see films was through the television or perhaps when you went out and bought a DVD. I actually still have that Sophie's Choice DVD. Um, I don't have a DVD player right now. <laughs> and I have a Chromebook which doesn't have um, a, a CD-ROM in it so I can't even watch it on my computer. Um, but I think I still have the DVD and the DVD I used to love getting them 
back in the day because you would get all kinds of extra features and this particular DVD had a documentary called Death Dreams of Morning and it was a short featurette that had interviews with Pacula, with, with Meryl Streep, with Kevin Klein, and William Styron. And so uh, that was a really powerful thing for me and I was as a child, I was very obsessed with the Holocaust, and I still am. But when I was around 9 or 10 years old, I read a book about Anne Frank. And I may have read her diary at that time, too. So we're talking about 5th grade, really. I still remember when I was in that 5th grade class, and there was this book. Um, it was a memoir that a friend, uh, I think her name's Hannah Gosler, and um, she wrote a memoir about her friendship with Anne Frank when they were young. And so that was a moment that sort of catalyzed my obsession with the Holocaust. And so I tend to watch a lot of Holocaust films, and I tend to read a lot of Holocaust books throughout my life I have. And I continue to because it's, it's just such a horrific moment in history, as all of you know. And so Sophie's Choice was part of that obsession. And I saw this film, and I've seen it many times, and it just obsessed me. And the book obsessed me. It's a huge book. I remember going to the Goodwill um, when I was younger because um, I didn't have a lot of money. I grew up poor. Um, I still struggle financially. I'm still working class pretty much. Um, never have, you know, enough money for stuff. Um so I I couldn't afford to go to Barnes and Noble or Borders or Books a Million to get new books, um, which would be like fourteen, fifteen dollars or more. So I always went to the like the local Goodwill, which is like a thrift store, and um, they would have this wall. I still remember the Goodwill that I went to, and they had this huge wall of books. And I was looking one day, and I had I had seen the Sophie's Choice film by then. And I found the book. It was this huge hardcover. It had like a like a, a tan color, very simple uh, book jacket. And it was right there on the shelf. And I probably got it for like a dollar or 75 cents or something. And, um, and I was like, well, I've got to read the book. And so I did. So when I talk about Sophie's Choice and my emotions about Sophie's Choice, it's very much connected to my childhood, to who I was as a young girl. Um, I mean, when I look back at myself, I'm like, God, I was so strange. Here, I was just this very intense, serious, dreamy girl, right, reading about the Holocaust, <laughs> watching old films, um, watching Holocaust films, you know, like writing in my journal. I was I was a very serious, serious person. I still am. Um, so all my emotions about this film are, are tied to my to my youth and to my childhood. And um I just had so many intense emotions about this story and about this film. So what is it about? And as I will say, um if with every episode there will be spoilers and I will talk about the ending I will talk about what happens in the film and the book so if you haven't seen the film or you don't want it to be uh, messed up for you or spoiled then you might not want to listen to the complete episode but Sophie's Choice has be sort of entered our cultural language right like 
people will if there's some if someone's having to make two decisions that are very difficult um they'll say oh it's like sophie's choice which of course trivializes um the horror of sophie's choice uh, i think some people say it without realizing what it's really about and um so i don't really particularly care for that um phrase but it has entered our lexicon as a country i think so sophie's choice it started out as a book by william styron and in the film it's about sophie who is a polish holocaust survivor she was sent to auschwitz and um she is she immigrates to the united states so the film is set um there's really two portions of the film. The first part of the film is mainly set in post-war Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Um, the Maybe the late 1940s, I would say, when Sophie has immigrated there. She lives with her boyfriend, Nathan, who is, um, who is very charismatic, very lively, but also struggling with profound mental illness with schizophrenia he becomes very paranoid very violent he is brilliant though he's very intelligent very uh full of life he's just a wonder to behold and nathan's played by kevin klein sophie's played by meryl streep and um so the two of them live together in what's termed the pink palace which is like a boarding house in brooklyn and it's pink and it's actually really beautiful it's this huge house and a young man named Stingo comes to that boarding house. He is from the South, like I am, and he goes to Brooklyn um, basically to, he has ambitions of being a writer, and so he's working on a book that hews very closely to his own life of losing his mother at a young age, and um, and so he has huge ambitions to be, I guess, maybe the next great American writer. And so he meets Sophie and Nathan, who are already living in the Pink Palace together. The three of them form a very tight, I guess you could say, love triangle in a way, because Stingo is very much in love with Sophie. And then the second, so the first part of the film is 1940s Brooklyn, and then the second part of the film is when there are flashbacks to Auschwitz, which was a death camp and concentration camp, in Poland, in Europe. It was Auschwitz-Birkenau, uh, or Birkenau. I'm not sh exactly sure what the proper pronunciation is. Birkenau, from what I know, was the death camp part. That's where people were gassed, and then their bodies were put in crematoriums, and they were turned to ash. And then that, there was a part of Auschwitz that was a work camp, and it was basically slave labor for people. So that is what Sophie has escaped. Um, she did ha make a suicide attempt um, earlier before she got to to Brooklyn, and you can and they do show the scars on her wrists, and we also see the number on her forearm that was tattooed to indicate that she was a concentration camp survivor. So we really have two narratives going on in the film. Um, we have a coming-of-age story with Stingo, the bright-eyed, optimistic, naive, innocent uh, young writer who goes to Brooklyn to make something of himself 
And then we have we have um, a Holocaust narrative about a woman who is profoundly traumatized and destroyed uh, by her confrontation with with death and with violence and with horror. And we have her relationship with Nathan that plays out. It's a very masochistic relationship. And what it what takes so long for us to learn is why she's with Nathan. Why is she in this violent, masochistic relationship? Nathan flies off the handle easily. He accuses her of cheating constantly. There are some more graphic uh, instances in the book. In the book, he actually urinates on her. That's not in the film. Um... From that documentary, I was talking about Death Dreams of Mourning. I think Alan J. Pacula said that he just couldn't go there. He couldn't do the scene of the urination because I think I think he and also the actors, uh, Kevin Klein and Meryl, I think they thought maybe it was just too degrading. Um, I mean, Sophie and Nathan are so beautiful together. I think Meryl and um, Kevin Klein are just at their most sort of incandescent they're young they're probably in their 30s at that point or their late 20s i think kevin klein does an amazing job of bringing nathan to life and how charismatic and they really are like fatally tragically glamorous they like like on the weekends they'll dress up in like 1920s garb and um and just hang out and play the piano and Stingo becomes enraptured by them he sort of enters this world that Sting that um Sophie and Nathan have created together and of course Sophie has created that world because she cannot live with what she did during World War II during the Holocaust the main thing that she did was that when she arrived at Auschwitz when she arrived and as many of us know when you arrived on the cattle trains uh, sometimes there was Joseph Mengele he's a very infamous doctor that would be on the ramp and there were other doctors that would be on the ramp and they would they would point they would point left or they would point right and that was your fate and you either lived or you died you either lived and went to work in the in the concentration camp the work camp or you were sent to the gas chambers immediately if you were 16 or under from what I understand you would be sent to the gas chambers children rarely survived Auschwitz rarely survived these death camps because all they were really looking for was um was I guess able-bodied adults and the elderly were often gassed immediately and children were gassed immediately unless they served some larger purpose say for the experiments of Joseph Mengele so Sophie arrives with two children with her son and with her daughter and there's a particularly vicious Nazi on the ramp and he says I'll give you a choice you can choose your son or you can choose your daughter and in the horror of that moment, Sophie chooses her son. And she hands over her young daughter. The daughter's younger than the son. And she watches as her daughter is taken away from her. And 
Streep gives a really stunning performance. I'm going to talk more about her performance later in the podcast. But in this moment, she really does this silent scream where her mouth is open, but nothing's coming out. And she said in, in the interview in the documentary, I saw that she didn't even realize she was doing that. That it really was this silent scream and that she, it wasn't um, voluntary. It wasn't something she was choosing to do. It just sort of happened in the in the moment in which she was acting the scene. It sounds like a moment in which she just kind of let go and the performance took over. And so Sophie... Sophie hates herself, I think, for what she did. She manages to get a job in Rudolph um, Rudolph Haas's um, Rudolph Haas or Hearse. Oh God, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Um, Rudolph was the commandant of Auschwitz, and he lived on on the on the in the area um and she manages to get a job with him and she barters i mean she does everything she can to save her son um to get information about her son who was uh, supposedly taken to the children's camp we don't know where he was taken he could have been killed immediately just like the daughter was um she tries to get information she tries to save him she even tries to get him in the Lebensborn program, which was when, like, Polish children were, if they were blonde and, if they were blonde-haired and blue-eyed, they would be sent to Germany to be raised by German, German families, I guess, um, something to do with, like, the Aryan, you know, blood purity sort of thing, um, that the Nazis were obsessed with. Um, she does everything she can, really, to save her son, but none of it really works and um so it's uh, she's with nathan the way i see it because she cannot live with what she did but of course and we don't know if if these incidents really happened i don't know if if in reality a woman was faced with this decision on the ramp at Auschwitz where one of her children would be saved and one wouldn't. I don't know if it's based on a true account or not, but I think it stands in for some of the other difficult choices that people had to make in order to survive the Holocaust. You you couldn't really be moral when you're when you're in a death camp or a concentration camp you know think of um think of the people who were part of the sonder commando and recently a hungarian film was made called son of saul that looks at a member of the sonder commando and they were the people that when people were gassed um they would go in and they would empty the gas chamber. They would empty the bodies from the gas chamber. They would take the bodies to the crematorium. This is at Auschwitz. And they would they would handle all that, I guess you could say, dirty work. But many of them were seen, I guess, as collaborators or like they were colluding with the Nazis. I'm not sure why people have that view. I think those in the Sonder Commando were just trying to survive. They were just trying to get through it. They themselves were often Jews. And um, 
so they were having to do the death work really of the camps and that's what the Nazis were brilliant at is they were brilliant at at seeming to give the Jewish people a choice just like with the Jewish councils that were set up in the ghettos across Europe those were headed by Jewish people and the Nazis would come to them and say you need to make a list of all the Jews that are going to be deported of course at the time they thought they were just going east that was sort of the euphemism they didn't know where people were being sent they didn't know about the death camps they didn't know they were sending them to their death I'm sure at some point they did know um, once people were trying to escape the camps and were trying to get words word out of what the Nazis were doing so the Nazis were brilliant at basically making other Jewish people feel like they were murdering other Jewish people because oh you're in the Jewish council so you're the one making the list the Nazis are not making the list and I think that's a particularly cruel and vicious form of violence that the Nazis came up with. They were incredibly creative in the ways in which they came up with these scenarios. Um, but that seems particularly horrible. The, the Jews never had a choice, did they? They never had a choice. If they didn't make the list, well, they were killed and then somebody else was going to make the list it was not the Jews killing other Jews it was the Nazis killing the Jews right I mean but they were able to displace the blame to say oh it wasn't us it was your fellow Jewish people who were doing this to to you or whatever and so I think Sophie Sophie's not Jewish Sophie is incarcerated in Auschwitz she tells Stingo that she stole a ham, but I can't remember if that's true or I'm not sure how she ends up in Auschwitz, but she does with her children. So she thinks in that moment that she has a choice, but as Michael Berenbaum says, I think in the documentary Death Dreams of Mourning, she or maybe it was another documentary that I saw him in in which he said this and he works for the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum or did at one time he said really what Sophie had was a choiceless choice it was not a choice at all and I think many Holocaust survivors or Holocaust victims people who died they encountered choiceless choices at every turn you know how do you stay alive how do you barter for your life the difficult moral decisions that people had to make do I sell this person out do I what do I do do I have sex with this guard you know there's there was violence a lot of violence against women in the Holocaust rape and sexual abuse so I'm sure women that maybe had to sleep with some of these guards didn't feel great about themselves either so what extent you know what are you willing to do to survive because you're in the middle of horror and that's what but I don't think Sophie could live with it and I think what I, why I'm so obsessed with Sophie's choice is I am obsessed with what trauma does to us what trauma does to the body to the soul how do we survive horror you know and obviously I've never been through anything remotely resembling the Holocaust none of us have right we never will hopefully you know um, 
but this is a story for me about trauma and it's about Sophie's trauma and it's about how she hates herself she lost her children she has nothing I mean she is completely stripped bare um, when she immigrates to Brooklyn she is a bag of bones a skin of bones she's barely alive she's barely surviving and Nathan is her salvation it's really also about how Sophie and Nathan save each other Nathan feels a lot of guilt because he's uh, he's Jewish and he was in America he could not fight the Nazis he could not save other Jewish people in Europe he felt helpless he he himself is very obsessed with the Holocaust um, in their room in the pink palace he has a room I guess it's his office and he has a lot of Nazi books or books about Nazis and about um, the crimes of the Nazis he's very obsessed with it and so they are magnetized you know they are seduced by each other because she gives him the intensity I also wonder if it's like when you go through horror when you go through something like that the intensity of life is magnified think about people who come home from war and they talk about how it was so intense and it was so heightened the, the way they lived that it's hard for them to go back to a normal life to just go to the grocery store go to the park with their children I wonder if there was some part of Sophie that there that Nathan was exciting even though he was violent even though he was painful to be with he heightened her life he put her in this constant state of not knowing what was going to happen life was unpredictable life was life was exciting adventurous and you know she didn't know what was going to happen next with Nathan I wonder if a part of her needed that um, to keep going or and of course the masochism the sadomasochism between the two of them which as I say is much more pronounced in the book I think and I think it is a controversial part especially of the book she I think she thought she deserved that I think she felt so degraded and so ashamed of what she had done of that choiceless choice on that ramp that I don't think she felt like she deserved much I really don't or maybe she needed that pain I don't know I'm not I'm not saying I have all the answers with this story but um it's just their relationship the whole film is building towards uh, it's building towards the ending that happens which is their suicide Nathan and Sophie are found in bed together dead because I think they took like some kind of poison and died together she can't live without him and he's losing his mind literally that's the second half of the film is Nathan's unraveling Nathan's complete breakdown from his mental illness because he has schizophrenia and she cannot live without him and I don't think he can live without her and they are absolutely like I said they saved each other he she when she's first in Brooklyn she collapses at a library and that's how Nathan and her meet and he 
cooks dinner for her. She has anemia and he gives her anemia, um, iron rich foods. He read, they read Emily Dickinson together because when she was at the library, she was looking for an Emily Dickinson book. They are very tender with each other at first. And I think she feels taken care of by him and she feels safe with him. And they're just, like I said, they're like fatally glamorous. And that's what Stingo says, I think, at some point. Or tragically, fatally glamorous. And they really were. But they were always, in a way, spiraling towards destruction and spiraling towards death. Um, they saved each other only for so long. But then, of course, I think they just kind of merged together and... They couldn't live without each other. And I guess when I was a teenager, this story was just so entrancing. Like, I think when you're a teenager, you're you're so intense. And your emotions are very heightened. And so when you come across stories like this about love and pain and trauma and horror. And, and of course, these lovers who are intensely in love with each other and, and kill themselves together like Romeo and Juliet, sort of. It's very appealing, I think, to a teenager, but I rewatched the film recently, just maybe about a month ago, and it was on Filmstruck, um, the website Filmstruck, and I rewatched it, and I still thought it was just as powerful as when I saw it when I was younger, and in my teens, you know, I probably am seeing it sort of a decade apart, you know, and um, I still thought that it had a lot of power about it, and a lot of... uh, a lot of beauty. And so I think Sophie and Nathan, I haven't talked much about Stingo, but he's inexperienced, he's innocent, he's he's naive, and he just falls head over heels in love with both of them, with Nathan and Stingo. And like I said, it becomes like this love triangle. And he becomes obsessed with them. And I I really loved this aspect of the film as well. And that was um, the relationship that Stingo has with Sophie and Nathan. And how I really loved the friendship between them. I'm someone who has been very lonely much of my life. And I haven't had a lot of friends. And so sometimes when I watch films about people who have these really intense friendships and who just have this really deep connection to one another. I find that so fascinating because it's not something that I've ever experienced myself. And so you have you have a movie about really about friendship, I thought, um, about Stingo, Nathan, and Sophie and, and who they are together. But of course, Stingo has to go on and when he meets Nathan and Sophie, they bring death into his life. They bring horror into his life. He's this little, he's this kid from, I think he's from Virginia. And um, I, I grew up in North Carolina, and Virginia's right above North Carolina. And um, he's just this little, this little southern boy, you know what I mean? And he doesn't have any experience with with this. And so it's it's a loss of innocence, I think, for him. He meets them and they completely change his life. And of course, he as the writer has to go on to tell the story. And he has to be a witness to 
Sophie and Nathan to the horror that Sophie endured. And um, he is the one to tell that story. And so it's really about a writer finding his voice. Um, it's about a writer discovering life and losing his innocence. And I think, so I think it's a good, I think it's an interesting movie for writers to watch, you know. Because um, it really is, it's about literature. Sophie and Nathan love literature. They love Walt Whitman. They love Hart Crane. They love uh, Emily Dickinson. And there's actually this wonderful scene on Brooklyn Bridge. Oh my God, I have, ever since then, I have been in love with the Brooklyn Bridge because of this film and would love to experience it one day, maybe. Um, where he toasts to Stingo. He's read Stingo's novel that Stingo's writing. And he does this toast to Stingo on the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's this moment of anointing. And um, Stingo, it's just, you can tell Stingo just feels so happy and alive. And that's the way Sophie and Nathan made him feel. But they also brought a lot of death and, and horror into his life that he has to live with and that he has to bear in a way. I just want to talk a little bit about Streep's performance, Meryl Streep. She did win an Oscar for her performance in this film. I do consider it one of the greatest acting performances in the history of cinema. I cannot over overstate how important her performance is and how amazing it is. Um, she lost weight for the flashbacks in Auschwitz when she was very thin. She wore false teeth when she was playing Sophie as an immigrant in Brooklyn. She, I think her and Pacula, I guess, thought that maybe because of, uh, because of the malnutrition that Sophie had suffered, that maybe her teeth would be affected by it. And so throughout the film, um, at least like in the second portion where she's an immigrant in, in Brooklyn, she has false teeth on. And you can tell, I mean, you can tell that they're false teeth. Um, Meryl Streep also took extensive classes in Polish and German. She may have been fluent. Um, I can't say for sure, but she did take classes in both languages. So this was an immersive performance for Streep. And I think that she completely embodied Sophie. And so I think when I became obsessed with the film, and I still am, her performance is key to it. Um, the way she embodied the trauma that Sophie endured. I mean, during the Auschwitz flashbacks, her hair is shaved, her hair is chopped off. She's very thin. She's she's not worried about being pretty or glamorous. This is about as naturalistically and realistically as possible about portraying um, the experience of the death camps. So I can't overstate Streep's performance, and I, I really think it is one of the greatest in cinema history. And rewatching it recently, I was just, <laughs> I was just as stunned. And it's not only in the big moments, like the the choice scene on the ramp at Auschwitz. It's not just that with the silent scream. It's the whole film because a lot of this film is about Sophie telling her story. It's about Sophie 
sitting, um, like there's this one scene where she's talking about Auschwitz or she's talking about her life in Poland and Streep is sitting at a window and when I watched the documentary Death Dreams of Morning, I want to say that Pacula said that, um, or Pacula, sorry, um, that he actually filmed her from far away. She's looking through a window and he films her looking through the window and her face is through the glass and I think Streep said something like I wish I could remember but she said something like that the that what she was saying was so horrific that that the that the memories she was trying to conjure as an actress were so inflammatory and devastating that she almost needed that space she almost needed for the camera not to be like right there in her face as she's trying to relive these images and and this story and and um so he filmed her from far away through the window through the glass and you absolutely believe that she is telling this story telling about her life in Poland and about her life you know in Auschwitz you absolutely believe that in this moment this woman is truly remembering these things it's just I think we forget that cinema is really so much about actors and about actors faces and about how actors embody and perform emotion and the human experience and the human condition and it's still like when you see a great actor there's still nothing like it there's still nothing like it um, and seeing her performance again made me think of other performances that I think are amazing like Gina Rollins in A Woman Under the Influence or Isabel Hubert in The Piano Teacher or Nicole Kidman in Birth by Jonathan Glazer or Marion Cotillard in La Vie en Rose um, I mean, these are just a few touchstones for me that I think are really great performances. And Streep just had it, you know. And she just said that it was so difficult doing those scenes. And then there was also, there's also a scene at the end where she's with Stingo. And this is when she actually talks about what she did. Because Stingo is saying, oh, I want to take you to my farm in Virginia and I want us to get married and I want us to have children and she says your children deserve a better mother and then she tells him that she had to choose between her children and in the documentary I saw if I'm remembering correctly it's a scene in which Sophie is supposed to have been drinking and I think Streep was actually drunk in that scene and she said that she was sort of inebriated and that she sort of didn't like that that she didn't think that her performance was good enough because she was inebriated and she was intoxicated and she didn't have as much control over it but I think it maybe gives it a bit of authenticity where you feel like oh she really is maybe drunk and trying to talk about this experience it's a devastating moment and that's when you see like the true self-hatred that Sophie has for herself that she doesn't think she deserves to be a mother again she doesn't think that she can do that because of what the Nazis did to her in Auschwitz and, and made her choose between her children that trauma just doesn't just evaporate it doesn't just go away it lives on in, in myriad ways 
And finally, I just want to talk a bit about the depiction of the Holocaust in the film. Um, an important part of the film is that when there's the Auschwitz flashbacks, um, they chose to change the colors. So uh, Pacula and the cinematographer used like a different lens and the colors of Auschwitz and of even Poland um, are very gray and brown and sort of like um, muted very different from the more colorful vibrant colors of Brooklyn so that was a very um, pointed decision and precise decision by the filmmakers to change the color when she's going into the past it's a very muddy sort of a muddy palette I would say very muted very um, very lifeless in a way that sort of color and it works very well it it sort of evokes I think the drudgery and the horror of Auschwitz There was a technical advisor on the film, or a consultant, uh, Kitty Hart Moxon, who's still alive, and she herself was a Holocaust survivor and was imprisoned at Auschwitz for several years. And so she was a consultant on the film to give it that authentic feel to make sure that things that were being shown on the screen were accurate. And there's this scene where Sophie, Meryl Streep's character, is walking through Auschwitz. It's just this field of mud, and I think it's past the gas chambers, um, possibly. And the hands are sticking out of the windows, like it's sort of haunting. And and Kitty was that was the one I think who told them that what you would do is that when you had to walk through the mud like that what you would do is you would try to step in the footprints that other people had left behind in the mud and so that's what Streep was doing as she walks through the mud she's trying to step into other people's footprints and so that's like a little bit of a detail that's very um, that's that's sort of accurate um, and and really speaks to I think the verisimilitude of the film and how they tried I think to get as accurate a depiction of of Auschwitz and the Holocaust as they could and um, I mean I, I know there are people that don't like the film there are people that say it's too long or um, it's too convoluted there's too much going on you know you've got Stingo and you've got um, you seem to have several different narratives like I said before you really have a coming-of-age narrative mixed with a Holocaust narrative but I I personally think that all of that is necessary I think every scene in the film is necessary to tell the story because this is this is a film about the Holocaust but I think more than that it's about life after the Holocaust or life after a trauma it's about how do you keep living and what if you can't keep living what if you've been through something so horrific that you can't keep living and when it comes to the Holocaust especially in American culture which I find really obnoxious is the tendency to want to focus on the hopeful narrative on the overcoming triumph narrative and we see that with Anne Frank a lot that everyone quotes the really positive viewpoints 
that um, that Anne Frank wrote about. Well, I think it's disingenuous and I think it's inauthentic because she, we don't know what she would have written. She was writing that when she was in the annex. That little girl, that teenage girl, and I love Anne Frank, she was sent to Auschwitz and then she was sent to Bergen-Belgen. At the end of her life, after her mother was dead, after her sister was dead, Anne Frank was roaming the grounds of Bergen-Belgen in a flea-encrusted blanket. She was naked and covered in a blanket, asking people for food. She was put through unimaginable horror. So when you only quote the positive parts of that diary, you absolutely do an injustice to her memory and her life because we have no idea what she would have written otherwise about the horror that she experienced. Yes, life in hiding was hard and it was difficult, but it was nothing like being taken to concentration camps in cattle cars and being put through selection and being put through hard labor and losing your mother and losing your sister and getting typhus and roaming around naked in a blanket you know I, <laughs> I have no patience or tolerance for people that want to make Anne Frank into this happy-go-lucky schoolgirl it's a complete just fabrication to me and so <laughs> we we want to talk about the the survivors who did really well and i'm i'm happy for the survivors that could go on and had a family and could live and you know it's amazing it is it's astounding the way people can survive horror and how they can go on with their lives but i do think there is a story that is not told and that's the story of the survivors who struggled the survivors who did commit suicide I mean, there's still questions about Primo Levi and or Levi, Primo Levi, and whether he committed suicide. It seems, you know, possible that he did. But we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about the survivors or the pe or people that commit suicide in general, who maybe went through really horrific things and really struggled to go on with life, who are forever changed by it. And so what I think I found in Sophie, and I continue to find in Sophie, is the story of a woman who can't be okay again. A woman who can't cope. A woman who can't bear what she saw and what she did and what she endured. Um, and she does end up dying. Her and Nathan take their lives at the end and Stingo comes and sees their bodies and and he knows that he has to go on and that he has to tell that story um, Sophie was a victim of the Nazi she was a victim of the Holocaust and I think her voice matters and you know I don't know what Anne Frank would have done if she had survived you know that kind of trauma and what she went through how she would have written about it if she could have ever written a word written one word again how do you she was 16 she was the age I was when I lost my father you you go through these traumas and they change you forever and so Sophie is an example of that and she's an important example of that and
like I said, it's about the Holocaust, but it's about how do you then go on living after that kind of degradation, that kind of violence that's inflicted on your body, your soul, your mind. Um, and I'd like to see more films and books about that. Films and books that are not a, not about the triumphant spirit, but are about like the real grinding day in day out work <laughs> that it takes to survive and to keep living and what happens when you get to a point when you can't keep living when you've lost too much and you've gone through too much and you just can't do it anymore I think that's a valid story a valid narrative to talk about but um that is my episode about Sophie's Choice um I hope it has value. I hope that you learned something new or that you just maybe look at the film in a different way or will maybe go seek out the film. Um, it's still a really important film to me and, and one that uh, that I just, I really love. <laughs> I love the film. I, I do think it's a great film. And I mean, a lot of people disagree with that. <laughs> I've seen a lot of reviews of it that are not kind at all. But I hope that I've made my case for this film and why I think that it is really, really good. I will stop here. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Bye for now.